0: If you brought a copy of scripture with you this morning, you can find Micah in the Old Testament. Feel free to look up your table of contents, Micah chapter six, and just one verse as we look in our issues and inspiration series at social justice and the church. Here's the verse. He has told you, old man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. When I preached on the subject of racism several weeks back, a friend of mine, a recent follower of Christ and closely connected to the emotions of that particular sermon, wrote me a text, and he gave me some instruction, also gave me some pause, and at the end of his text, he said, we need to get get comfortable in being uncomfortable, which was a pretty good line. We need to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Now, one of my struggles as I approach this subject of social justice it's a, it's a little bit like preaching on infant baptism. It's not in the Bible, per se. Not the social justice that society has both promoted and politicized anyway. Bacham, uh the great uh, African-American theologian and preacher and dean of a seminary, has said he, he thinks we should stop using the term altogether. Uh, Kevin DeYoung calls it nebulous, the term. And of course, John MacArthur in his typical sarcastic uh, moment says uh, justice needs no adjective. And yet they've all had to deal with this issue. We have to deal with this issue. And the reason is because it becomes very scary when it creeps and the ideology creeps into the church. It muddles the gospel. When the church focuses on social justice issues, it often does so at the expense of the gospel itself. Francis Schaeffer, almost sounding like a prophet, said, if we have no way to judge society by by way of an absolute, then society becomes the absolute. And he was right. Society has become the new absolute. And many churches... Evangelical ones even are giving into the pressure to conform to society's version of justice. So, what is what would be a sociological definition for social justice? And what I've done is I've kind of composited many of the more popular versions. They all pretty much come to the same conclusion. But basically, it's the belief and the demand For equal access to wealth, opportunities, and privileges for all within society, particularly, particularly to what the society deems as its minorities. Now, that is accomplished by the state's wholesale distribution or redistribution of society's wealth and resources and power to produce, quote, equality, unquote, in its disadvantaged groups. And basically, it's tantamount to a version of socialism is what it is. Now, among those groups, and there are many others, but so as to not complicate it any more than we need to, are the poor. These are minority groups. The poor, women, women which is kind of ironic because women are actually a majority in our country, but that's another story. Various races and others, uh, those of differing sexual orientation, a sermon we'll get to at the end of the month. Social justice, uh, the social justice movement's ideology makes certain groups victims, both past and present. My parents... We're ill-treated, my grandparents were ill-treated, my great-grandparents were ill-treated, and therefore I deserve reparations. Have you ever heard the word reparations? And that's a big debate today. Let me just take that on for a moment. Reparation, the whole reparation thing makes no sense to me unless the offenders are living. Otherwise, it's not justice at all. That doesn't even justify the term justice. And by the way, how far back would you go anyway? How far back with African Americans? Native Americans. How about the Irish? I'm 75% Irish. I ought to have something coming to me. They were mistreated when they came. And these immigrants in the 1800s. How about the Japanese that were interned in those camps during World War II and uh, they were abused and mistreated? By the way, reparations, let me just... Think think about the word. The word reparations, the word reparation comes from the root word to repair. To repair means to fix. I can't fix the past, and neither can you. I can express sorrow. I can seek forgiveness. and, And if I am personally the cause of someone's suffering, I can make good by restoring, and possibly with penalty, what I have taken. Now, there's no question that America's biggest black eye in its past is slavery. No question about it. But what country doesn't have its own black eyes? What's really at stake here when it comes to reparation has to do with living. It doesn't make sense to keep going back in time. A real good example is Zacchaeus in the Bible. Remember Zacchaeus, the wee little man? The wee little man was he? So Jesus, he's the tax collector. He's the extortioner, which most of them were. He calls him down from the tree, the sycamore tree, goes to his house, finds salvation. And look what Luke tells us. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor. Talk about going the extra mile. Lord, and if I've cheated any uh, people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much, which was more than was required by the law. That is a beautiful demonstration of repentance, isn't it? But what I want you to note is, all are being given back to those who are currently alive, living people. Now, when it comes to social issues and social justice All of us have causes within us. And I'll get back to that in a moment. But you need to know your makeup. You need to know your makeup. Every one of us are made up with intellect, emotion, and will. But because we live in a sin-cursed world, none of us are perfectly balanced in those areas, right? Some of you are bent toward the intellect. Others bent toward uh, emotion. And others bent toward the will. The intellectual person must learn to have a heart, <laughs> have some emotion, and maybe even become a doer because the person who has will is the one who's a doer. Uh, if you are that person, that doer, your bent is toward the will. You're the, one who, <laughs> you're the one who often thinks before you act, or I'm sorry, just the opposite. You act before you think. And if you're an emotionally bent person, you can easily be carried away by demagoguery. You know, that, those are those who preach and they move you with their feelings and, and you just got to go there. Regardless of the facts. Social issues, and there are a myriad of them, do pull at our heartstrings, don't they? Go like this. Or are you dead? I mean... I'm not moved by the animal abuse commercials that have the dog with you know half its hair gone, the other one limping around, and a horse that's ready for the glue farm. They don't particularly move me. But every time one of those Shriners commercials comes on with those those little kids, I'm, I that gets me every time, every time. Now, how does a Christ follower respond to? Social issues and social justice issues, etc. Well, we should always ask the question that Paul asks: what does the what does the scripture say? Romans 4, 3, right? The Bible makes clear the believer's responsibility to society outside of the church. We're to love your neighbor. Speak up for those who can't speak for themselves, the writer of Proverbs says. We're to obey the government. We are to honor our leaders. You say, I don't like our president. I don't care if you don't like him. The Bible says honor him. It says to live a quiet and peaceable life. You ever read that? To walk wisely towards those who are outside. And Paul adds, remember the poor. Those are all generic statements towards outsiders. But I have to hasten to a word in Matthew 25. I have to, to one of the most oft and yet misquoted scriptures in all the Bibles. Believers and unbelievers alike. Unbelievers particularly love this passage. They might hate Jesus, but they love this passage. This is the one where the, the setting, the context is the return of Jesus, the return of the king, the setting up of the, of the millennial kingdom, which is to come, and the separation of the sheep and goats and all of this. And It's in the midst of this that the king says to them, he says, come blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. You know this passage, don't you? I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked. You clothed me. I was sick. You visited me. I was in prison. You came to me. The righteous answer, Lord, you know, when do we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you a drink? When, when were you a stranger, and we welcomed you naked and clothed you? And when do, we, when do we see you sick or in prison to visit you? And the king will answer them. Watch this. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of these, the least of these my brothers... You did it to me. Now, newsflash. Jesus did not ever call unbelievers his brothers. He called his followers brothers. He identified with God has always identified with his people whoever that people group may be. Even the, when Saul is persecuting the church, remember that in Acts chapter 9, Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus, and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, Jesus already died, rose again, and ascended into heaven. But he's identifying with his church, as God always does. Now, in a less popular Less famous parallel passage in Matthew's gospel, mind you, chapter 10. Jesus says these words, notice carefully, this is a parallel passage. And whoever gives one of these little ones, even a cup of cold water, watch it, because he is a disciple. Have you ever read that? Truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Now, the clearest statement in the New Testament, which I urge you to memorize, is in Galatians, where the Apostle Paul says this. Now watch. He says, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. That's a blanket statement. Saved and unsaved alike, let's do good to everyone. Amen? That's what it says. But that's not what the whole verse says. The second half of the verse is what turns on the first one especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Have you ever read that? Look, I take no pleasure in bursting people's bubbles, okay? But these passages are referring not so much to the general treatment of the less fortunate in society, but to the less fortunate among the people of God. Look, No one has a right to take the Bible and make it say whatever they want it to say. While all Scripture is inspired, all Scripture is profitable, all Scripture is applicable, no Scripture is subject to my personal whim or cause. And so just because these things sort of pull at our heartstrings... Get the context, understand the meaning. Who's he talking to? Now, we are living in this world, but not of the world, amen? And there are certain social ways in which we are to live. I just named several of them. And you're looking at Micah's words. And when God says, he's, he's shown you, old man, what's good and what the Lord desires from you but to do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. And that's a pretty simple outline to look at. There are three social commands here. Do justice. To do justice means to act fairly. That's all. It means that our deal, in our dealings with others, Christians known to screw others over, to get on the upside of the deal and the downside on the relationship are not acting justly. And God has called us to act justly. To love kindness. That's the old translation that says mercy. It's that Hebrew word hesed. Beautiful word. God's covenant love is the idea here. The Good Samaritan is a perfect example here of somebody showing mercy or kindness. Contrasting to the religious society of that time and the proud. Writer of Proverbs says, whoever is kind to the poor, lends to the Lord. What a beautiful statement. I think that you and I, who are followers of Jesus, should take the love of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and it should be the governor of all of our actions when it comes to others. So do justice, love kindness, and then walk humbly. This is a really cool word. This word, this Hebrew word is found nowhere else in the entire Bible, right here. No other, no, it's found nowhere else in the Old Testament. It's, the Hebrew word literally means modesty. It's the idea of demonstrating humility. Uh, my wife and I are going to jump on a plane in a couple of days. We're going to go to Togo. We're going to go to northern Togo to the sub-Saharan area where a number of our groups have gone and done work. And if you're a woman, you're not going to go showing any leg. I can tell you that right now. You're going to wear a dress down to the ankles. That's wherever you go. Otherwise, you're going to offend everybody. Because it's an open demonstration of humiliation and submission. But notice what the prophet says. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly, but don't miss the prepositional phrase with your God. With your God. Because it doesn't matter what the scene is down here if it doesn't look good up there, right? This is, after all, this is a heart issue. Just the other day, the Engage leaders got together, and I'm sort of the leader amongst the leaders, and we were together, and we're we're doing some Envisioning and this and that, and we're at a restaurant we're in the side room, and this guy walks by who was a former member of this church many years ago, who left because we took Baptists out of our name and I, I kind of liked him. that doesn't sound very good. I liked him, <laughs> but we had our issues, and uh, he comes up and he just started, and Remember, he left ostensibly because of that. And he came up and he started talking and bragging about his church that he'd found after bopping into all kinds of other churches. He ends up in a church that's not only not even Baptist in its theology, it doesn't even have good theology. And I was just beside myself. So I said, what are you going to a church like that for? And We went back and forth. I started listing all the things that were unbiblical about it. Everything I said was true. He walked away. And my conscience was bothered. We went about our business, but the next day, the Spirit of God spoke to my heart and said, you need to own up to that. And I wrote him, and I asked him to forgive me for for what I said, the way I said what I said to him. And he did forgive me, and I asked the other guys to forgive me as well, because the point of the matter is it doesn't matter if I was right if my spirit is wrong. And God has called us to walk in a humble fashion in this world. So, those are some of the commands of Micah. For the Christian, the issue of social justice, I wanna give you three things here are, are personal and political, okay? They're personal and they're political. I can't control the political system that I live under. I can, as a free citizen citizen of this country, protest government action. I can run for office. But in the end, my greatest calling is not to influence the government, but the hearts of those in the spheres in which I run. Amen? I dipped my toe into the political waters many years ago, pulled it out, I dealt with the subject of the death penalty. Wrote a column in a newspaper. In fact, a local, one of our state representatives got a hold of that column, made copies of it, gave it to every state representative and state uh, senator in the state of Iowa. I argued in the column the difference between the Christian's personal response to a crime against him and that of the government's political responsibility uh, and response. So, for instance, when Jesus says, if someone strikes you on one side of your cheek, do what? Turn the other. I, I, I argued that he was giving us, he was dealing with us personally. And that's how we are to personally respond when somebody uh, is a, does a crime against us, hurts us, that's what we are to do. When those, when unbelievers and believers alike take passages like that and politicize them, they're muddying up the Bible. In Genesis chapter nine, Noah comes out of the ark. God says to Noah, "Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed." Have you ever read that? That's a call. That's that's a that's a statement on capital punishment. No way to get around it. And later on in the New Testament, when Paul says to submit to governmental authorities, in chapter 13 of Romans, he says, the government does not bear the sword in vain. I got news for you. They didn't use their swords for shaving. Here's the point. There are clear instructions in Scripture as individuals that we, how to personally respond but how the government is to respond to perpetrators of crime. That's why we have laws. That's why we have incarcerations. That's why we have punishment. It's a political just, uh, uh, justice, punishing the perpetrator of the crime. Here's the third thing I want you to know, or second thing rather, is, is uh, our heart, it's a, this is a heart issue as well as a head issue. Now, one legitimate grief by some are those, are of those. Who, uh, who, who think with their hearts rather than with their heads. Know anybody like that? Because you're out of balance there. And the Bible gives us a plenty of warnings about, you know, operating off of your heart. Unfortunately, those who make the biggest argument against them are those who think only with their heads and not with their hearts. God would have us, as we look at this world and we look at all the woes in society and we look at the things that are out there that are hurting, the people that are abused, the struggles that are out there, He would have, our ta- have us take our heads and our hearts and put them together. The border crisis that we're looking at right now and has been going on for a long time is a serious matter. It's not an easy one to address. It's a national moral crisis, but at least we're having a crisis over it. What other country is even worried about that? Except the one that has a modicum of Christian conscience left in it. There is the matter of the law. We can't just set laws aside. There's the matter of evil men who want to come in and they'll commit crime and bring drugs, etc. And then there's the matter of the downtrodden, the tens of thousands that are begging to get in and escape the oppression that they've lived under and to get into a country that'll allow them to live and express themselves just as you and I get to do. So what's the call here as we bring heads and hearts together? Here's what the call is, 1 Timothy 2. Here's what 1 Timothy 2 says. Pray. Pray for those who are in leadership. Pray for your president. Pray for those who are in charge. That's the call. Put your heart together with your head. You might have a solution to this matter. Great, bring it up. But don't lose your heart in the matter. When you put your head and your heart together, then when you see someone that's hurting, you're not going to judge them. You're going to help them, assuming it's as unto the Lord. And then... This matters, uh, this is the other thing, and that is when it comes to the Christian and social justice, seeking the well being of others as unto the Lord and not unto me. Now, let me just be clear about this the social justice movement is patently narcissistic. It is patently, it's all about themselves. But we just heard it. You heard Jason read the scripture from Colossians 3. Whatever you do, it with all your heart as unto the Lord and not unto men, right? That's why I love the Samaritan's Purse. I think we ought to support Samaritan's Purse for Franklin Graham. And then you got the Peace Corps. They're both doing the same thing, or are they? They're both helping fellow men. But the Samaritan's Purse is giving them not only a cup of cold water, but a drink of God's mercy. With the gospel there. And they understand the words of Jesus to the woman at the well. Anyone who drinks from this water will thirst again, but the one who drinks from the water that I give him will never thirst. So we seek the well-being of others as unto the Lord and not unto men. So give me a cause. That's what we all want, right? Give me a cause. Human nature desires a cause. Would you agree with that? But if you don't have a God cause, you'll manufacture one on your own or you'll jump onto somebody else's wagon. The Christian causes that are out there to the pro life movement, to fostering, to sex trafficking, to helping the poor are all good things. Every one of them are good things. But here's my question to what end? To what end? If I preach a great sermon and I never give the gospel, it's not a great sermon. had a visitor to our church some time back say, what are you doing for the community? What are you doing for the community? What are you doing for the community? Driven by a cause. Not for the lost, but just to help people. And while I've shared this illustration before, it has never meant more than this moment. It has never fit more into this context than it does in this context. I'm referring to Jared Leonard, our pastor of our our children's ministries, great grandfather. I knew him when I was a student. He was 115 then. And he was a rough, gruff, tough guy. He wasn't touchy-feely. But he saw something in me, and he always wanted to speak a word of encouragement and exhortation and some little prodding along the way to me. He saw me outside of a grocery store one day. He said, Numbers, I want to talk to you. Now, whenever he talked to you, he never looked at you. Until he had to. But you were expected to look at him. And he's, we're outside the grocery store. He says, Nevers, I want to tell you something. He says, I was in a mission one day, preaching the gospel. And he looked at me and goes, you don't dare preach anything else in a mission. And he went back to his story. I have no idea what that story was. But that parenthetical statement literally tattooed me. It changed my life. Because if the gospel isn't attached and weeded through whatever we're doing for the common good, it's no good. We're just dressing them up for hell. What is your cause? If God has given you one, if he has put that in your heart, what is your cause? I mean, there are, this is the patriotic weekend. There are great patriotic causes. You've, you've memorized half of them. Nathan Hale, I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. What a great cause, patriotic. Patrick Henry, give me liberty or give me death. Or we can look at some of the great men of God like David as he faced Goliath, famously said, is there not a cause? In other words, is there something we're, isn't there something we're living and dying for? Joshua said, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I have a cause. And my personal favor is the Apostle Paul who said to the Philippians, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing will I be ashamed, that with all boldness, as always, so even now, Christ will be magnified in me, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. That's a cause. What's your cause? What is the Christian's greatest social cause? It is the divine justice and justification that come to the heart of the person who places their faith in Jesus. Jesus. And then no matter what happens to them socially, it's a win. It's a win. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. I'm not ashamed to declare to you that the greatest need for man is to know God, to be forgiven of his sins, and to be given an eternal place in heaven where there's no more inequality, no more racism, no more health issues, no more payback. My wife and I were in a restaurant the other day and we ordered our meal and we ate our meal and we were ready for the bill when the waitress came and walked up to us and sat in the chair across from us and said, Mr. Nimmers, there is no bill. I said, what do you mean there is no bill? They said, well, someone has paid your bill. And I thought to myself, what an announcement you and I have to make to anybody. Someone has paid your bill. When he died, he said, it is finished, and it was. The bill was paid. That's the greatest announcement we could ever give to anyone. Should we help those who are fallen? Absolutely. Absolutely. Should we be involved in, in all kinds of causes that lift up our fellow men? Yes! But to what end? To the end that Jesus Christ is magnified and the gospel is preached in his name. Amen? Amen. 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 God, thank you for your word and for these issues, so many of which, Lord, have complexity written all over them, and yet, Lord, there, are, there is simplicity here for us to know, God, you have saved us to, to move in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, and we are to shine his lights, and that doesn't mean just sing and smile and be good neighbors, but it does mean all of that. It means to help those who are fallen, those who are struggling, those who can't help themselves for sure. But all to the end that they might hear about Jesus. Be saved. And no matter what happens in their lives between the time we meet them and eternity, they have so much more to look forward to. Give us, dear God, the greater cause for justice, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.